Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. My name is Tracy Friesen, and I am the founder slash author of Story Money Impact. I let my boss at the time know I was going to give notice. And then two days later, honestly, the job ad for the NFB producer in Vancouver was in the Globe and Mail and somebody handed this to me and they said, you've been talking about documentary. Is this the sort of thing that you were talking about? And I went, wow, nobody ever leaves the NFB. What do you mean there's an opening in my city? Monetizing Your Creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your creative talents? I feel like it was really clear when somebody came in those you know, hundreds if not thousands of pitches I was involved with during that decade at the NFB, you could really tell when somebody was so passionate about something that they were going to tell this story even if they had to do it in a slideshow for their family. You know, like this story had to come out of them and it had to be shown to people. We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, another episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. My name's Fred Keating. My co-host, Marvin Polis, is, is not with us today. He's somewhere else in North America digging up exciting new stories. Tracy Friesen has combined her own particular skills with a variety of experiences in media, documentary film particularly. She's also an author of a book, Story, Money, Impact, and she's here today. In fact, I should say I'm here today in her cozy little nest far above the bustling streets of Vancouver, Canada, to ask her how, in fact, she got started in this particular business and built a career around it and monetized her skills, and her creativity. Tracy, thanks for having me in the house. Very happy to have you here. When did this media mania first possess you, Tracy? You really want to go back that far? I had media in my mind since I was in the ninth grade. I started with photography, and I felt from that point on that some form of storytelling, visual or journalism, I think I wanted to be the National Geographic photographer because I don't know who didn't really want that job, right? So that's where it began, and then I, I stuck with it. I went to Ryerson, so I knew right from the beginning that I was going to want to take media studies, and I took the radio and television program at Ryerson back in the late 80s, early 90s, and I've been on the path ever since. And you've done very, very well by it and diversified. You've, you've worked in so many different media formats and worn so many different hats, but I think our paths first crossed when you were with the NFB, the National Film Board of Canada. And can you tell me a little bit about how special that institution is for those outside of Canada who may or may not have such a national film board in their country? Yeah, the National Film Board is unique in the world, really. A publicly funded documentary, animation, and new media production and distribution company. Like, it's crazy. It's, a, it's, it's such a gift to our country, and I hope that we continue to support it at the levels that it needs. So it's literally a studio of studios across the country. I was the head of the Vancouver studio, and we had a team that produced documentaries in-house and with the independent private sector primarily, and uh, released those films to Canada and to the world with a, with a mandate really of reflecting what does it mean to be a Canadian? What is a Canadian perspective 
on the world stage. A lot of it is artistry, but a lot of it was also um, films with social impact. The, the NFB is like over 75 years old, so it's a, it's a real treasure, and I was uh, lucky to spend over a decade there. That's really the catbird seat, isn't it, in terms of being in a position to create, be a part of the creation of wonderful documentary work and animation, as you mentioned, and also to help emerging artists blossom. What did you have to have in your satchel when you showed up at the NFP? What had you done prior to that made you the right person at the right time and the right job? Just being sassy. (laughs) It was really... um... I'll go back just a bit. I I had been working in post-production prior to that for about 10 years as an editor, as a uh, post-supervisor, and then right prior, I was with uh, what was Rainmaker at the time. And I was in a position of sales. I was doing at that stage sales and industry relations for the post-production and visual effects Rainmaker. And uh, I realized that when I was an editor, the thing that I loved the most was editing documentary. I loved doing that deep dive for months in stories. It was like every film was a mini degree in a certain topic. You learned so much about that, uh, about that whole theme and about that whole story. So when I made the decision that I was going to leave Rainmaker to pursue, after five years, to pursue story again, I was getting too far from story, frankly, while I was in this position that was... um, Um, uh, steeped in uh, post-production. I let my boss at the time know I was going to give notice and uh, gave him a nice long period of notice. And then two days later, honestly, the job ad for the NFB producer in Vancouver was in the Globe and Mail. And somebody handed this to me and they said, you've been talking about documentary. Is this the sort of thing that you were talking about? And I went, wow, nobody ever leaves the NFB. What do you mean there's an opening in my city? And so I very I very openly and aggressively fought for that job. I studied, I made contact with people who were in the organization to learn what I would need to know. Um, and then I went to, I got an interview, which was the start, and I went to the interview um, with all guns a-blazing. Like, this was what I wanted to do. And though I had never produced a documentary, I had been around story as an editor. I had been around the industry through Rainmaker. I had volunteered for organizations and knew the community. And I had been around budgets. And I felt like I could take the job on without the baggage of having been an independent producer and just do it the NFB way. And I must have made a compelling enough case in that moment that they took a chance on me and hired me for the job. And I swear, Fred, I pinched myself for about two years thinking this is a dream, making independent films with artists, with public money. It was an amazing bit of trust on their part and an amazing opportunity for me. Can you think back about some of the specific things you did to prepare for that interview? And I ask that because we so often talk about uh, auditions and interviews and our listeners are always wondering what happens behind those closed doors and how can I best prepare for what I really want and how how do I put my best foot forward. Now you'd been in the business as you mentioned for some time and you had a bit of a network but when it came down to you with your elbow on the table here the night or two or week or two before Mm -hmm. that interview what kind of a plan if there was one Mm -hmm. did you put together? 
I watched a lot of films that the NFB had produced. I mean, I sat doing a marathon of movie watching in a, in a sense. And, and I'm glad that I did because it did come up. It, this was a panel interview. One of those, there's three people sitting across the table. They're not engaging personally. They've got a list of numbered questions, a lot of scenario playing. What would you do in the event of this? How would you handle that? What is your favorite documentary? Who is your favorite international documentarian? How would you? And so I studied. And I also connected, as I mentioned, with people who worked at the NFB and with people who had worked for the NFB and made sure, even in advance of that, that I had reference letters from people who would be known with inside the NFB that were specific to this job. So not general reference letters, but I suggest Tracy would make a good NFB producer for these reasons when I worked with her when she was an editor. So I really took it on as a project, getting this job and was really grateful that it ended up playing out the way that it did in the end. When you got the job, what kind of latitude did you have to make decisions and engage with the artists who were coming to you for support and for money and for advice and counsel? The NFB is not a funder. It is a production company, which was one of the the distinguishing things that we had to talk about frequently. So we were very creatively engaged in the projects. The full film board projects, in fact, the directors are hired back as gun for hires on the projects that they pitch. The NFB owns the full copyright and the NFB's production studio goes forward to do all of the aspects of production, leaving the director for the creative execution of their project. So we were working very closely with directors. In co-productions, it was a little less hands-on, but in the full film board films, we were right in the trenches with them. About halfway through my time there, I became the executive producer of the studio, so I had more decision-making clout, I suppose, but I had less opportunity to be as close to the projects. So it's one of those things that happens in one's life where you look back and go, you know what, the heyday probably was as a producer. You know, I, it was a good professional opportunity to try uh, to have a bigger role and to interface with the larger institution. But the real fun was to be working directly with the filmmakers, helping them to deliver the best project that they could. We often hear from people who want advice on how to get their work seen and produced, but also how to retain copyright or ownership. So would you be suggesting that the trade-off there, if I came with a story, and so NFB accepted the story, contracted me back as director, but held all the rights to it, that uh, the trade-off there is somehow I've now got an NFB film and that opens it up to the kind of global marketing and distribution that the NFB has? I think that's a good articulation of one of the trade-offs. I think the the real truth is very, very few documentaries ever recover what it costs to make them. So not being a copyright IP holder at the end when it comes to documentary may not be so dire. Like I, I had it happen once, I can say for sure, maybe more than once in the 10 years that I was there, and that was the film Being Caribou, that actually recouped the costs in the market of the $350,000 budget. It earned that much in the marketplace. It doesn't happen often. And so I think people need to be clear-eyed in a sense that by giving up those ownership rights, they also give up the risk. 
Like it's a really big thing to have another organization take on the full financial risk of your project pay fair market value for your time and then support you on every level to get it done. It's not perfect. I really do believe in the retention of IP when possible, both as a country, like wishing Canada could retain more of its uh, intellectual property and as an individual artist. But I did see the value, especially for emerging filmmakers, of not having to do any more fundraising. It's done. Like for the full film board films, all that they're doing after the point that it's greenlit is delivering on their film. They don't have to go and pitch it anymore. So that's the benefit. There's pros and cons. Now, in your book, Story, Money, Impact, you mentioned right off the top, I think, you referenced the Caribou Crossing experience from the producer's perspective. So for all the preparation and planning that you did prior to your interview with the panel that got you into the NFB. Tell us about the pitch or the plan or the careful presentation that the Caribou Crossing people brought to you as a producer and what, in fact, intrigued you or scared you about getting deeply involved in that project, that ultimately incredibly successful project. It's funny of all of the choices of the dozens of films <laughs> that that I had the chance to work on at the NFB. Being Caribou was a, a was quite an anomaly in terms of the pitch process because the couple that were going to follow the Caribou herd were going to do it anyways, whether a film was made or not. They had the beginning of a working relationship with an independent producer and director, uh, Diana Wilson, and she's the one who came and pitched on their behalf just for development funding. And at that stage, I'm like, yeah, right. Like this couple's going to do what? As if. So we'll give you a little bit of development money. Let us know if they survive the trip, right? And I did check in a little bit looking at some rushes along the way and, and uh, that they were shipping out because this was the era of tape. And, uh, and then it wasn't until they got back that we went, oh my gosh, these guys have shot a film. And then we backfilled and, um, and licensed the rights back and properly paid them for their time and fully funded a, a, a post-production process. So in that case, the pitch was, uh, these people are going to do this crazy thing. And we were like, mm, okay, let's see if it could work. That seems to be a particularly effective thing to bring to the table as a filmmaker. I'm going to do this whether you help me or not. Just so you know, we'd like to invite you in to help us out here. You seem to be a, a logical partner, but uh, we're going to do it. Whether you help us or not, this film's going to get done. That's a pretty bold and, at the same time, imaginative approach to take. Would you agree? I do agree with that. I feel like it was really clear when somebody came in those you know, hundreds, if not thousands of pitches I was involved with during that decade at the NFB, you could really tell when somebody was so passionate about something that they were going to tell this story, even if they had to do it in a slideshow for their family. You know, like this story had to come out of them and it had to be shown to people. And the other type of pitch that would happen sometimes is when you could get the sense that maybe last week somebody grabbed some newspapers, cut out three different articles that looked compelling, kind of came in and said, I got this, I got that, I got this, what do you think, which one will work? And um, it didn't feel like they were as invested in the stories. And so it feels like it's simpler to dive into a project where you can just tell the passion alone is going to be one of the big driving factors. There's that P word again, passion. <laughs> There's that P word. And of course, Marvin has a T word, trust. What do filmmakers 
What did they have to do to demonstrate the fact, and you've touched on it a bit with the passion, to build trust between you and them? How did they nourish and sustain that trust, but how did they build it at first? When did you know that they might be a reliable team, and what kind of sixth sense do you use as a producer who, as you say, have seen dozens, dozens of pitches, hundreds of pitches. How do I build trust across the table from you? That's a really interesting question. I I, I won't focus in on that one group of storytellers with that one film, but I... in terms of building trust, I think it grows over time in a vocational relationship in the same way that it does in a personal relationship. Do people speak with conviction, with clarity? Do they keep the same points on the table? Like, are they consistent with what it is that they want to do, with how they, how they communicate? Are they clear communicators? And is there the sense that it's coming, you know, from the heart in a way? And then trust is built over time. Trust is someone saying, I'm going to get these these uh, materials out to you next Thursday and having them arrive next Thursday. I'm going to introduce you to this other member of my crew and having that person come to the meeting, you know, like having and, and having it be reversed. I think it's important to earn people's trust as well, whatever position you're in, because all of these creative relationships are mutually beneficial. I didn't ever like to feel like someone had to earn my trust. I wanted to feel we had to earn each other's trust because I needed the great storytellers as much as they they needed the NFB's support. We couldn't do what we were doing unless really terrific people with really impressive skills came forward and gave their kind of babies, you know, put them out on the table and showed the vulnerability of that. And so I think it's a two-way street trust building and both people have to really be themselves and be consistent and have conviction. In other words, do what you say you're going to do. Absolutely. And any of us in our professional lives, if we get the opportunity to live a long enough one, are going to have moments where we weren't able to live up to what we promised. And we're going to feel betrayed by people that weren't able to themselves. And, you know, the only lesson that we can take from that is, hey, we're, you know, we're all doing our best. We're human here. And we will, there will be errors along the way. And to continue to treat each other with as much respect as we can. Would you say as producer and then eventually executive producer that you were assisting artists in monetizing their creativity? At the NFB, in terms of monetization, people were paid for their creativity. But I also feel that there were many initiatives for emerging filmmakers where there were opportunities around training and mentoring and expanding reach into communities that maybe weren't doing as much storytelling themselves and therefore showing a path toward the fact that there could be a career in media. And so in those some of those initiatives, though a lot of money might not have changed hands, I think there was the opportunity to show that there is a career path here and that there are outcomes that can allow you to pursue this work full time. Now, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about it because particularly with documentary, it's tough. I mean, there are certainly career documentarians who that's all that they do and they're living, uh, you know, interesting and full lives. And then there are a lot of other people where where their documentary is their passion project and they have other more potentially stable jobs that continue to pay the bills because it is a tricky business it operates in a place of market failure like in our country 
there is not enough of a population or appetite necessarily for paying for documentary content to ensure that all of the artists and all of the people that contribute as crew are properly paid. Some will, some are, you know, and, uh, but there are many, many more people who I think are giving a lot of themselves in this space who may not be earning a full income. Thinking back about the fact that you provided a number of artists with an NFB credit, Mm -hmm. whatever their craft category might have been on that particular picture, had to be at least prepping them Mm-hmm. to monetize their creativity. And NFB credit would uh, would open a lot of doors for a lot of people. It's true. And there are, you know, the NFB credit, sometimes there, there were small grants that were called Filmmakers Assistance Program, FAP grants. And I think even for the filmmakers who received those small grants, to be able to say they were supported by the NFB was really great. But for the full films, it's important to note that for every one that got developed, 99 pitches were turned down you know and for every 10 that got developed three got produced you know and and then one maybe really made it so I I I don't want to be discouraging by any stretch but I think it's important to 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 recognize that there are still a lot of other artist support mechanisms that are important as a community for us to continue to support so that these emerging artists and creators do have a chance to make a living in this really terrific business well even after you left the NFB and we talked about do what you say you're going to do. Was there a time when you sat down and said, I'm going to write a book about how people can get these important motion pictures underway? I did not leave the NFB thinking I was going to write a book, um, but I did leave the NFB thinking that I wanted to do more active work in trying to figure out how to support those other 99 filmmakers that didn't get the NFB green light, right? How, How to ensure that some of the stories that are in people's minds and aren't getting told can get told, or some of the films that are made and already on the shelf that aren't getting seen get seen. So I I knew that I wanted to do a deep dive into the field of alternative finance and figure out how to bring other forms of resources into the larger social issues media ecosystem. I could just say documentary ecosystem, but I think it's bigger than documentary. Yes, it is. And in fact, I think it's worthy of its own episode. By that, I mean, we're almost out of time here, but I really would, with your permission, like to visit you again and base an episode around Story Money Impact, the book that you wrote that pulls together a tremendous amount of information on each of these essential key elements to any production that is worthy of being made and, of course, worthy of being seen. But for now, thank you so, so much for uh, letting me in, and I'm going to come knocking at your door soon again, please, with your permission, Tracy. Yeah, my pleasure. It's really fun to revisit that era at the NFB. It's a special place, and I'm, I'm glad to have been there, and I'm very happy to talk about the book with you next time. Excellent. I encourage our listeners to Google search the uh, National Film Board of Canada. Much of their work is online. You'll be able to see through the decades how important and essential a contribution they've made to world cinema history. And Tracy Friesen, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Monetizing Your Creativity. Be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave a review. It helps us with our ratings. 
You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity.